Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. Hey guys, thank you for tuning in. We had an awesome interview with a super smart guy named TJ Williamson. Yeah, man, he was absolutely great. And even though he brought topics to a high level, he had the ability to break it down for anybody to understand. And that shows true mastery of, of the topic we were talking about. Sit back and enjoy. You'll learn a lot. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so my name is TJ Williamson. I'm a chiropractic student at Logan University, which is in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I'm two weeks out from graduation, so I will be graduating with my DC doctor chiropractic degree as well as my master's in sports, sports science and rehabilitation. Uh, originally from Arkansas, but don't plan to go back to practice. I've got plans to move to Denver shortly after graduation, so that's hopefully where I'll be setting up shop and getting things going. Nice, Denver. Um, so I know we've talked before and you're writing a research paper, right? Yeah, uh, it's in the works. It's coming towards the end of, you know, getting that stage of submitting it for publication. So we'll see how long that takes. What's it about? Um, it's a culmination of like the last three years of kind of all the research I've done either as a side project or for a mentor of mine, Dr. Norman Kettner, who's the dean of research at my school. Um, we are focusing on chronic primary spine pain. So chronic neck pain, chronic low back pain. So it's, it's going to be a two part narrative series. The first part, which is completely finished unless we make some fine tuning is the background behind like how it comes about. So we talk about the differential diagnosis between acute and chronic spine pain, talk about risk factors, pathophysiology, um, just kind of paint a really good picture so that we can get clinicians to fully understand the, the entire complex nature of chronic pain. And then part two, which is still in its drafting phase, also coming to an end soon, is more about how to construct an evidence-based uh, management strategy to care for these kinds of patients. Got it. So before getting to the rabbit hole of acute chronic and spine pain, how, how do you define pain? What, what is pain? <laughs> I know well, it's tricky and subjective, but... Exactly, yeah. So I've done myself the diligence of memorizing the IASP's definition, which is what I think is a really good representation. I think it's being called into question that they need to fine-tune it or change it a little bit, but it's the... Let's see if I can recite it to you. It's an <laughs> unpleasant sensory and emotional experience uh, caused by either actual or potential tissue damage or described in such terms. And I think the, the hallmark of that, like if you were to pick one word out of that sentence, it's experience. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's a sensory and an emotional component to pain. And we know that, um, you know, it can be from, you know, something triggering the alarm, like the, the Cartesian model of pain, which is that something in the periphery, you know, insults the body and then it sends a message up to the brain, rings the alarm bell. Uh, then there's the Aristotelian, kind of perspective which is that pain is viewed as the opposite of pleasure and so the their their motivating influences and so he takes more of a behavioral approach whereas the cartesian model was more of a, a biomedical approach to understanding pain which approach do you like more both <laughs> 
in the context of chronic pain, I would say you're, you have to side with Aristotle and the, the behavioral approach. Um, the, cause you know, in most cases, especially in chronic pain, that's persist, persisted beyond healing time. There is no tissue damage that's causing the, the chronic pain, uh, at least in the case of what we focused on in paper, which is chronic primary pain. Um, according to like the ICD-11 criteria, like there's chronic musculoskeletal pain. This is caused by actual physical um, triggers like osteoarthritis and chronic osteomyelitis, these kinds of things. So there is an anatomical cause of this pain, but the scope of our paper is on pain when there's no tissue damage, there's no anatomical cause. So, so. so let's talk a little bit about the differences between acute spine pain and chronic spine pain, the differential diagnosis that you mentioned. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? <laughs> yeah, so before you can understand chronic pain, you kind of have to take a look at acute spine pain and then vice versa. I think all the studying I've done of chronic spine pain has given me a better insight into understanding the nature of acute spine pain. Um, so let me, I'll answer it by kind of prompting you. You don't have to answer, but like if I just said you have a 30 year old male with you know, spine pain, he has low back pain that's been going on for six days. Like, can you provide a differential diagnosis for that? Can you put it into buckets? And how do you frame your, your differential diagnosis for low back pain? With only that information? Yes. I it's hard, you, right? I can give you an idea, but no, I, 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 don't, I don't have a differential diagnosis. Yeah. So that's the thing is uh, a lot of times when I ask people this, and I, I was the same way until I was taught. So I was just being facetious. I'd turn around and, you know, say the same thing to lower students. But you know, you start naming off pain generators like, well, there's, there's discogenic pain, there's facetogenic pain, there's sacroiliac joint pain, there's myofascial pain. So you're naming all of these uh, potential tissues that can cause pain, but these all fall under the umbrella of nonspecific pain. Mm -hmm. um, so if I were to give you my like differential diagnosis of low back pain, and this is based off of papers by Johan Bland and Chris Marr and a lot of really like top ranked uh, researchers out there. Uh, I, I typically imagine four buckets. So there's the big non-specific pain bucket, which encompasses anywhere from like 80 to 90% of all pain, all low back pain. And then off to the side, the other 10%, we've got three buckets under the specific pain category. This is where you can find a pain generator. So of these, you've got visceral referred pain. So something coming from an organ and it's just referring to the low back. Um, you've got um, spinal pathologies. So this is where you've got like your acute compression fracture. You've got um, metastatic or primary malignancy of the spine. You've got rheumatologic disorders of the spine and you've got infections like spondylodiscitis. And then the third category, which is a little bit more prevalent is the nerve root disorders. So radiculopathy, uh, cotyquina syndrome or stenosis with neurogenic claudication. So under those four umbrellas, you could pretty much encompass all different types of spine pain. And I think a lot of people, especially chiropractic students, we get so involved studying just this. It's a rather large bucket, but nonspecific pain. And we get really involved with the, you know, picking out which pain generator it is. And we don't look at the big picture. So that's your differential for, you know, if someone just comes in the office and they say, I have low back pain, you've got to consider all four of those buckets. buckets. Right. I like that. Yeah. And so my diagnostic approach, the way I've been trained is that you're not looking for a way to prove or find an orthopedic exam or whatever it may be to prove that there's a pain generator. And then you can rule this as nonspecific pain. 
but instead I view nonspecific low back pain as a diagnosis of exclusion. So your goal is to just rule out the other three, right? And so you see this all the time in the literature and systematic reviews. It, like, it always says rule out red flags, consider yellow flags, this kinds of thing. So, you know, your history for the most part can take care of a lot of the spinal pathology and the visceral referrals. And then part of your exam, you can rule out your nerve root disorder. So you can throw in a straight leg raise, um, you know, specific testing, I guess, for stenosis when necessary. It's also very historical diagnosis. But it, as long as you can get those pertinent negatives, then you can arrive at nonspecific pain land. And that's when you can do your chiropractic thing. And, and you know, whatever intervention you think is best, you go from there. So when it comes to, you just mentioned the uh, best, best intervention in your experience, what, what would be your go-to idea of what the best intervention would be? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I don't have one. Like I can't give you an answer because I mean, we take a very individualistic approach to care. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of factors at play. And then I think this is where my study of chronic pain has helped me understand how to best gauge treatment because you've got to consider all factors about this person sitting in front of you. It's not just about where does it hurt? What makes it hurt? What makes it feel good? You've really got to think about um, what else is influencing this person's pain behavior. Mm -hmm. Right? So I, we take more of a behavioral approach to pain. So whatever it takes to get this person to feel empowered, to feel educated and have a good understanding about their pain and uh, you know, whatever we, whatever barriers we need to remove, that are keeping them from overcoming this pain on their own, right? Something drove them to come in and see you in the office. So we got to figure out what that is, not so much what hurts. Hmm. Do you have a game plan uh, on how you would address the yellow flags? Do you plan on sitting down with your future patients and having that talk right away? Or are you going to try to relieve the symptomatic pain and then having the talk once you build some kind of confidence or? Hmm. You, you brought up a really good, point you, you said getting rid of the symptoms right like symptom modulation or symptom management is a right. go-to um, what I've learned and I've spent a year now in a clinic where we see a lot of underserved underprivileged underinsured patients who are considered below the poverty line mm -hmm. um, I've seen a lot of complex you know chronic pain which is what stemmed this research project and yeah I think in my experience which is different patient populations than maybe clinic B is seeing, mm -hmm. um, you really do, you have to look at the yellow flags. You have to assess for those before you consider any forms of treatment. Because to me, psychosocial risk factors for the chronification of pain are far more important than just providing a little bit of symptom modification or neuromodulation in any form. So we do that through a multitude of things. There are a lot of historical questions that need to be thrown in, like, you know, how's your sleep? Is this pain causing you to have trouble falling asleep or is it waking you? Uh, we talk about any sorts of activities that this pain is causing them to avoid out of fear of making the pain worse. Um, and then we, you know, we're very goal oriented. So we throw in questions like, if you didn't have this pain tomorrow, it's gone 100%. How would your life change? What kind of things would you get back to doing? So we're more about getting them back to those things in spite of the pain, because we know the more focused you are on pain, you know, the the less effective the outcomes tend to be. Right. But then we also throw in things like the start back and, you know, yellow flag screening tools, which are, you know, in the evidence is they're good predictors of chronic pain. And then the Orebro, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. O-R-E-B-R-O. It's another questionnaire that we don't use, but it is a good 
tool to use for prediction of return to work and those sorts of disabling factors. Mm, do, do you like or do you use the term non-specific low back pain with your patients? No. Um, in fact, I'm glad you brought this up too because last night I was on, I was sifting through Twitter a little bit and Mary O'Keefe was giving a presentation on this topic. They were talking about how you label a person's diagnosis or how you present it to them, the words you use to describe their condition uh, can influence their pain-related behaviors, which is the goal, right? So the more you medicalize a person's diagnosis, the more you describe it in terms of, say, like a disc lesion or a facet lesion or a, you know, a strained muscle, and you're trying to describe to them where and how the muscle is strained, the more you can uh, be specific with your explanation, um, the more likely they are to seek imaging, seek inter, um, you know, surgeries or some kind of interventional uh, management like that. But I don't like the term nonspecific on the other hand, because it makes you sound as a clinician, like you don't know what they have. Uh, so the go-to, and this is something I've learned from my clinician, obviously, is he usually just says, you've got, you know, you're run of the mill, muscle pain, joint pain, nothing worse. And he spends a little bit of extra time saying, you know, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not a, you know, a slip disc. It's not sciatica, pinched nerve, like all these terms they may have Googled before they came in to see you. And I think that's equally as relieving as giving them, you know, the diagnosis of muscle and joint pain It's telling them what it's not. Cause there's, you can see that sense of relief in their eyes when they like, Oh God, you know, thank God I don't need surgery or I don't need this, or it's not as bad as, you know, my sister or my cousin had it. And, you know, that's smart. I had never thought of about it that way. Cause people like, People don't like to use non-specific low back pain, but then they just pathologize another name and just change mm -hmm. it a little bit into multifactorial or yada yada. But I, I like that approach. I had never thought about it that way, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a study as far back as, I think it came out in like the 90s, 1995, 97, something like that. They, uh, they reviewed close to 2,000 patients. And all these patients were work-related back pain um, without litigation interfering. Um, they removed those people from the study. Um, so work-related back pain, and they were all some form of lifting injury. They're all similar mechanism or something. And uh, of these 2,000 patients, only 9% of them were given a diagnosis where they really explained the anatomy. They said, you have a disc this or that, bulge, herniation, whatever. You have a you know, facet this or that, or a you know, muscle this or that. And then the other 90% of patients, 91% of patients, they were just told you have, they would keep it simple. Like they would just say you have normal back pain or you have uh, nonspecific pain or you have a strain sprain, but we're not going to talk about which muscle, which ligament, whatever. And they kept it pretty vague. Mm -hmm. Well, of those people, the 2000 people, roughly 30% of them went on to suffer from disability related to their pain. Um, those 8.9% of patients were 30% of that percentage of people who went on to be disabled. So hopefully I worded that correctly, but yeah. that, that 8.9% of people who are given a specific pain generator explanation for their pain, they went on to represent over 30% of the people who were disabled from this back pain incident. So, yeah. And, and there's more research that's come out since then that said the same thing. If you just keep it simple and you just kind of, you don't focus on the tissue of origin because likely we have it wrong anyway. Like there's no good test to prove what we're saying. Um, you know, just look at the bigger picture and think about what really matters. Do we need to focus on 
what hurts, where it hurts, how, and why it hurts, or do we just need to focus on getting you back to living your life? Right. So I have a question. Maybe you'd be able to field this. Um, why, why low back pain? Why is that such a, a common place in the spine where low back is where it We were presents? talking about this the other day. <laughs> <you>? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, hard question to answer. And I should, I should have prefaced this entire conversation at the very beginning with the caveat that, you know, I'm a student. I'm still learning. I have a lot to keep studying. So this is a big wall I'm running into where my, my quick answer is, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. I think nobody knows. Right. Yeah. But I'll give you my best guess. Yeah. Um, so in studying chronic pain, I've learned primarily there, you know, there t- typically is not a tissue of origin that's causing this pain. It is in fact a diminishment of descending pain inhibition. So like your substantia gelatinosa, which arises from your periocdical gray, rostroventral mm-hmm. medulla, um, these patients have a diminished ability to inhibit just all nociceptive signaling coming through their entire body at every level. And so quantitative sensory testing can prove this too. Like people with chronic low back pain, you do algometry on their scapula and they have a lower pressure pain threshold than healthy mm-hmm. controls. So we know from these kinds of studies that there's a, an amplification of pain no matter where it comes from. Right, so people will allude to like a guitar and an amplifier. You can have pain by strumming the strings really hard. That could be representative tissue injury, mm-hmm. or you can turn up the amplifier, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter how hard you strum, you don't have to strum that hard at all, and it's still going to be really loud, and you're going to perceive a lot of pain. So then I start asking, well, why? Yeah, why is it that the low back is the single most common place for pain? It's the number one cause of disability worldwide. Uh, my my answer is a combination of things. First and foremost, we know pain is an experience. It's, it's based on a combination of memories and learning and associations and all the current uh, environmental stressors that are you know, being applied to this person. But I also think of other things like you know, the low back and the neck where a lot of pain occurs. It's a highly innervated area. It's a very dense area. Uh, in you know peripheral nociceptors so it may not be that they're being bombarded with tissue damage but the littlest bit of uh, any nociceptive signaling whether it be chemical or sporadic you know temporal summation or spatial summation of just random inflammatory uh, you know chemical irritations to these nociceptors it is more dense so it's going to pick up on more of these these chemicals that are just you know just just there not due to any actual damage the amplifiers turned up in those areas. Yeah. yeah. If the amp is up, then what cord gets strung the most? More sensitive. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Good analogy there. That's a phenomenal analogy. <laughs> like I was writing it down as you were saying it. Like, yes. I tried. <laughs> I stole that from, uh, what's his name? Daniel Claw. He's a rheumatologist. Lots of good research. He's a, he studies chronic pain, central sensitization and uh, fibromyalgia is a, a lot of what he studies. And he has good research out there as far as, um, what pretty much what I just said. So what, I mean, do you obviously exhort people to exercise with chronic pain, right? Absolutely. So how, how do you think exercise affects positively chronic pain? Can you repeat that? Like what's the mechanism behind why exercise works to treat chronic pain? Treat yeah. yeah, like why, why does it work? Why, mm-hmm. why that with patient education is the gold standard? What's right. the mechanism well, behind it? Um, to answer that, I think we bypassed a lot of like, 
you know, the understanding of chronic pain in general, but to (laughs) to shortcut it, I can say something I learned from Dr. Norman Kettner, my mentor of mine is he's, he's said the phrase all the time. Fear is the central component of chronic pain, whether it's like the most typical, like fearful, shaking, like scary movie kind of fear, or if it's like a different kind of fear that maybe doesn't manifest emotionally. Um, But fear is definitely the number one component, whether it, maybe some people it kind of gets converted into a depressed like state or an anxious like state. These are all risk factors for chronic pain. Um, but at the cent- the center of it is like there's a disruption in the fear conditioning triad, the amygdala, hippocampus, MPFC, uh, medial prefrontal. So um, the point I'm getting at is exercise, especially when it is an exercise that represents uh, feared movement, you know, graded exposure to a feared movement, it's about the empowerment, it's the restoration of confidence, and it's the elimination of fear that they have you know, associated or tagged to these movements, which is exactly why, kind of going back to the history when we talk about setting goals, is we can usually get out of a history what they fear doing. Like, I, you know, I, don't, I have grandkids, but I'm, I don't feel like I can bend over and pick them up. I just don't have it in me. It's probably one of the most common ones. Or when I have to do this or that activity, I have to put my hand on the counter to support myself. So yeah, exercises can be very physiological. Like you're just trying to restore certain things like sarcopenia or aerobic capacity in their body and resiliency, which is part of it. You're, you're desensitizing a lot of peripheral structures, but I think the, the more important part that a lot of people overlook is that you're, you're eliminating these emotional connections to the the pain they're experiencing because emotion plays a much larger role in the chronification of pain than anything sensory definitely 100 percent um and i think it also has to do with self-efficacy which is basically what you're saying because i mean exercise they can do it on their own so they have the power to do it that's self-efficacy and we know that self-efficacy is huge when it comes to having positive outcomes because if you have a patient with zero self-efficacy at all the outcomes are probably going to be like really bad but i think exercise empowers them as you said and it gives them the needed self-efficacy to be better and better right yeah and and talking about self-efficacy too, that's exactly why all these guidelines say to you know, lay off the passive therapies and the adjunct therapy, unless you're going to also include physical rehab or some form of active care. Like the best of the best guidelines, like Lynn and um, I forget the first name, but Lynn, they just did a systematic review of all these evidence-based guidelines for musculoskeletal care. And at the very top of the list, it says you need to do active care. And you need to educate the patient, right? Because education is going to start altering their perceptions of their pain is going to challenge their, their mythical beliefs of their pain that, you know, I'm weak and brittle. I can't move. Um, and then the active care will help to reinforce that. The passive care is just, to me, it's just neuromodulation. It's just a yep. really quick way to, you know, turn the amplifier down momentarily for the next 30, release. 60 minutes and then get, get to moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, if at all, would you use manual therapy? Um, <laughs> this is something that it's, it is again, patient by patient. And, Sometimes I get it wrong, and by that I mean like my clinician would advise otherwise. Um, but the overall theme that I've gathered from my experience so far is that um, the start back screening tool, first and foremost, if this patient is at high risk of chronification, then we know right away we need to prioritize education and active care. Um, but if they're if they're low risk, 
And another freebie is I've been adjusted before and it felt great. I had a positive response in the past. Okay. We know expectations shape pain. Mm -hmm. So having this positive expectation that, oh yeah, I've been adjusted before. It felt great. I bet when he does, it, it's going to feel great. Mm-hmm. So for us, this is a pretty quick green light that says, you know, go ahead. We, we should do manipulation on this patient. So it is one of my first go-to uh, treatments is as far as when I can, you know, when I think it's necessary. Um, but there are also other cases when I think manipulation would be bad. So especially yeah. in the clinic I'm working in, I see a lot of people who've been through a lot of stuff like gunshot wounds or abusive mm-hmm. relationships. And so if, if you've suffered years of, you know, say a big, large muscular boyfriend who is mm-hmm. physically, you know, abusive to you, they're probably not going to like another man falling on top yep. of them when they're in this twisted, vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a lot of associative things to think about. <clears throat> what do you think is our role as MSK clinicians and healthcare providers? Good question. I'm glad you brought this up. Um, so first I'm going to, and I could be wrong when I say this, but I'm going to throw out what I think the average chiropractic student aims to be. And cause primarily this is what I used to think. And now, I'm, and then I'm going to counter it with a better answer. So throughout school, I heard the term a lot. We are masters of the healing arts. We are the best at treating pain. We know how to reduce pain. Like, all these messages were that we could get pain down or we can get people out of pain. And so it was a very pain driven mission that I I was on until my clinical experience kind of taught me. Otherwise um, my, my answer to that question, what, what are we or what do we do in musculoskeletal care is that we, we coach and empower patients to alter their pain or health related behaviors is the way I would say it. So the common thread running through all these evidence-based interventions that we have, so empowerment, education, active care, we're always aiming to change a person's behavior, right? So whether it's altering their, their understanding of their pain, their perceived like experience of their pain, it's going to change the way they cope with it, the way they react to it, if they fear it or not. Um, and these will all dictate, the difference between I need to sit down and rest or I just need to get on the floor and do a couple exercises that my doctor taught me last time. So yeah, my quick answer is we are here to change people's pain related behaviors because positive behaviors, positive lifestyle choices are what's going to prevent disability, right? Acute back pain comes in and out of the clinic and it's, it, it feels good in a couple of weeks at most, right? Yeah. It's the chronic pain that we really need to focus on, right? It's that's where the real skill comes in. You can rub boo-boos and make f- people feel good until they heal from maybe a true strain sprain. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, you see a lot of non-specific insidious pain. There was no mechanism of onset. They just had a low point or a stressful week and they come in to see you. And so you need to, you know, show them the way as far as getting them back into this positive lifestyle. So how do you help your patients um, install new lifestyle, like behavior changes and lifestyle changes? Because we know it's pretty damn hard to change yeah. our habits and stuff like that. So what methods or mechanisms do you use to make, to make it easier? I know it's not easy, but. Sure. Yeah. And this is, this is the skill. This is what separates good clinicians from bad. And it's something I'm still working on. I will for the rest of my career is 
what's the best way to, you know, motivate a person to live a healthy lifestyle. Um, I'm not even going to discuss changing diet because as Brandon Steele once said, I would rather change someone's religion before I change their diet. <laughs> um, but there's other things you can do indirectly just by letting them know the, the strength of their back and that they shouldn't avoid this or that. Um, like flexion is the hot topic. Right? Everyone's afraid to bend forward. Um, they think their disc is going to explode and yeah. it's game over for them. So a lot of it is if you can get across to them and you can be really good at providing good, solid education. And I don't necessarily mean pain neuroscience education. I just mean education as far as, you know, your hurt does not equal harm. Like your back is, is it's a lot stronger than we give it credit for. Um, uh, movement is actually more beneficial than sitting on the couch. Like these little things that we think are so simple, like they could be novel to a patient who hasn't studied what we've studied. So they don't know, like they come into you because they need answers and they're scared and they, they Googled some things and they don't mm -hmm. know, should I sit down? Is it okay to move? Should I go to work? Should I take time off? Like you see this all the time and they'll come in and say, you know, I've been thinking about getting a desk job instead of this job that requires a little bit of manual labor here and there because I think I'm going to hurt my back again. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be that, that guiding light to say, no, like the more active you can be, the healthier you're going to keep your back and, you know, let them know these things. So sometimes it's not about directly telling them, Hey, you need to change this about your life. Right. That's too, uh, I think that's getting too deep or you're penetrating into their life too much in that case. But if you can give them the tools they need to figure it out for themselves, Right? They have a better understanding. They have a better perception. Um, they're more well-informed. They know to ignore those Instagram posts about text neck or, you know, proper form, yeah. the hip hinge, you know, those, those things are detrimental and we just need to abolish those. Hmm. You have a question? So if I came to your office with like wrong beliefs saying, basically saying that, Oh, like, my old chiropractor like aligned my spine twice a week and I believed that for years. How do you address that? Like, cause just giving them facts, we know that won't change their beliefs because that's how we were like humans were here. So, so do you just find them where they're at or like, what's your go-to? Like, I know it's hard cause I've had that conversation. But. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a risk benefit that you got to consider for everything you're about to do. And I think, if you were to challenge every patient's beliefs on day one, you're not going to see them again. Right. Yep. So you got to consider like if, if they have these positive expectations, like we mentioned, if you were just to adjust them and they go about their business, they're probably going to have a good experience, but you don't want to reinforce these negative beliefs either. I've, I've seen patients like this. They, they come in and they say, you know, my pelvis is rotated or it's twisted. My previous chiropractor, he'd put it back in place for me. So on day one, I may just, I may just kind of fulfill their needs, right? At the end of the day, we're serving their needs. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we are catering to them. They are the patient. It's not about us. Um, but over time, maybe as we build a relationship, which is another conversation or rabbit hole, we won't go down as the therapeutic alliance. But um, once you build that relationship, then you can start saying, you know, like everything's exactly where it needs to be. Like you're doing well. Sometimes when you have pain in a joint here or there, it just kind of alters the way you perceive that joint. Uh, if I'm, you know, I'm still looking for a good way to explain it. That is simple. makes sense. It's not too intrusive, but yeah, I think the quick answer is you don't have to challenge everybody on day yeah. one. You're going to lose a lot of patients doing that. 
definitely. Do you ever feel like you receive imposter syndrome? <laughs> um, daily? Yeah. That is, that is uh, man, I'm trying to refresh myself on the definition. That's where you pretty much tell yourself you know nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That is probably my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I'm very low confident myself. I don't know anything like that's also what motivates me to continue to learn. I believe, you know, like there's, there's days I'll wake up and appreciate that I've come a long way, like graduations right around the corner. And I think about where I was three years ago and when I started the program, but no, I think <laughs> imposter syndrome, I love the term, but no, yeah. I think, I think it's one of my driving motivating factors on this. You know, you can use it for positive and negative energy. So it just says somebody that's doing all the research you're doing and you're, you're smarter than 99% of the population on the topic of pain. And, but like it's at the, at the same time, you have all these articles coming out on the topic and it's like, well, now I got to learn that. Now I got to learn that. So you should meet the people who are teaching me what I know. <laughs> you know, like you, you say the word smart, that's a relative term. So definitely is. Yeah. And until I can be where some of my mentors are, I will never consider myself, you know, sufficient you know like you got to keep you got to have a growth mindset Mm -hmm. you got to keep telling yourself you got to ego check and say you haven't made it you got to keep going like there is no end right you got to keep growing so how how have you developed the growth mindset and the critical thinking mindset that you have because school doesn't teach teach us that how how have you like just i don't know reading and just thinking I think it's, it's, uh, are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yeah. Yeah. And like the Albert Einstein quote is like, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of those two. Like, you know, I hit a peak where maybe the first year of school, I was like, man, I know a lot. Like that's when I turned around and I was tutoring people in anatomy. I was like being like, oh, I'm an expert in this stuff. Like I can teach it to you now. And then you just keep studying and you start finding out like, oh, I never learned about that nerd, or I didn't know this or that. And it, for every, any subject of study, you, you, you learn a little bit, you feel like an expert and you keep learning and you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much more to this. <laughs> right. So I think that's, that's kind of what separates, you know, different clinicians from one another. It's just where they are along that spectrum of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Right. Did they, did they reach a point and say, there's so much to learn. I don't want to do this. I'm just going to kind of take the minimal amount that I need to know and just run with that. And then there's other people that have that mentality where I need to know everything, Mm -hmm. right? Like I will not be happy until I know every little thing. So I, I would probably line myself up more with the latter description. So yeah, I kind of have no choice at this point. I just got to keep learning. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Where's the line in the sand that you think that, this is a sufficient amount of information I need to know to be a good clinician. Cause there's, there's a certain point where it's just like, right. it's great to know this, but it's not really clinically applicable. Sure. So where, how yeah. would you draw that line? Um, so I can answer that two ways. I would say right away. Um, and I really wanted to bring this up cause it's like my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> um, but like my guiding why, like what, drives me to do what I do is mm. if you're familiar with Francis Peabody he was an MD and back in hope I get the year right like 1927 maybe um, he wrote something called the, the care of the patient right and there's a quote from that that has stuck with me ever since and it's that um, the secret to caring for the patient or 
the secret to the care of the patient is in caring for the patient. So I've always told myself, no matter how long it takes, you're always going to get better and better. You're always going to be growing, but don't beat yourself up along the way because at the end of the day, as long as you care and you're in this business to serve others and you really, really care about like helping people change their lives and restore their, you know, their health back to at least to a state where they can be happy again. If you have that personality set, like it doesn't matter how much you know because mm-hmm. caring for the patient matters way more than the amount of knowledge you have. Right? You've got to have the passion too. So, and that, that goes back to you know, like burnout too. People burn out because they're in it for the money or they're in it for this or that. And they honestly just don't care to meet these people that come in and sit down and you, you talk with them and they're just like, all right, like, what are we going to do today? Um, mm-hmm. How much are you going to pay me? How many modalities can I throw at you to up, uh, up the bill? These are the people that burn out, but no, like at the end of the day, I I'm, I'm in this because I just want to get people better. Like mm-hmm. pain and suffering is a very large component of so many people's lives. And if you can eliminate this, the suffering, you don't have to focus on the pain, but if you can eliminate the suffering, get them back to more happy lifestyle, that's, that's a huge win. And you don't have to know much. It can be mm-hmm. as simple as being their friend, smiling and being, you know, like the, the light in a you know dark day or dark week, if you can just be there for them. So just listening to them makes a huge difference. Yeah. So a lot of what we do is an intuitive act. A lot of it does require a background in medical sciences, but as long as you're just there caring for the patient, you can do a lot of damage. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I like your why, because I read a book like three years ago, I think it was and a quote stuck with me. And it says that, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. You can apply that to patients. I, I yep. mean, it's literally just what you said. Right. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And part of that same essay that Peabody wrote, he talks, he goes on to talk about like the difference between a young student and someone who's been out in practice for a long time. And he said, students have all this knowledge about science and physiology and neurology and anatomy. And they've, they've never been trained in the skill of just caring for a patient. And so that's, that's why like these, these docs who've been out in the field, it doesn't matter what technique they're doing or how competent you think they are clinically or how evidence informed they are. They're still out there and they've got 35 years of practice under their belt for a reason. And they didn't go under as far as from a business standpoint, because at the end of the day, a lot of these guys care, even if they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the same thing can be said about someone who learns, learns, learns and, they can still fail to, you know, produce results because they, they don't make the connection with the person in front of them. Yeah. And, and caring for the patient is a huge component of developing the therapeutic alliance. Exactly. How, how do you develop therapeutic alliance? You personally, <laughs> um, I know it's a rabbit hole, but yeah. Um, I think it's just a, it's just an intuitive thing. Uh, it, I mean, if you care, you care, you know, if you, if you really want to know about their new puppy and you want to see the pictures that they're showing you and, or you want to ask them how their weekend was like, those are the little things that will make you better than everyone else. But you really can't learn this. This isn't something you study. Um, at least I don't believe so. I think you can be aware of them, but being aware of the fact that therapeutic Alliance when put to the test in like, research shows better results doesn't make me better at Mm -hmm. developing a therapeutic alliance so it's a great topic of discussion but i think at the same time there's nothing you really can do about it except just giving a damn yep Mm -hmm. 
Have you ever unconsciously noceboed a patient? Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, lots of learning points. And these are things that, luckily, because of the people I'm under, that I've, I didn't do it twice. Um, but in my early stages of treating patients, like, prime example is I was teaching people with back pain how to hip hinge because they need to avoid flexion, mm-hmm. right? That, that whole talk. And they didn't have signs of nerve root disorder. They didn't have radiculopathy. This was nonspecific pain local to the low back. And so I was noceboing them and I didn't realize it because I was telling them non-verbally that if you flex your low back, if you bend forward, you're going to make this worse. And I was telling them you need to hinge at the hips. Mm-hmm. but this guy's not into weightlifting. He doesn't care. Like he doesn't work out. He just wants to get through his day of work. He's a construction worker. It's pretty strenuous, but yeah, like that, that was a nocebo. And luckily my clinician called me out on it and you know, we took care of it. We kind of changed the management plan a little bit, but mm-hmm. yeah, there's little things like that and it's everywhere in every, every technique, every camp of, you know, different yeah. types of docs, whether they know it or not, but you just got to be aware of this stuff. And that's why I really advocate being an evidence informed provider and trying to stay up on this literature because understanding pain is a bear, you know, like it's, it's something I'll never stop studying. Like I'm literally reading a book titled understanding pain. So <laughs> and I'm I about think to we'll never fully understand it to be honest, because it's yeah. so subjective. Like my pain is not the same as your pain. It's just not the same as the other guy's mm-hmm. pain. It's, yeah. I don't know. It's an experience and everyone's experience is different. Mm-hmm. I actually bookmarked a little passage that I really wanted to read because I, it hit home when I read it. Um, we have never understood pain. It has been an obsession of religion, literature, philosophy, and science. Called at times an evil and at others a punishment for evil. Pain is physical and pain is emotional. Pain is inevitable and pain can be overcome. Now pain is in the hands of the physiologists and we're still in the dark. Oh, wow. So had to share that. Now, just to talk about the when you know see both somebody about the flexion of the hinge, do you think you could rebrand that and say that this is an effective strategy for the time being, or this is just well that would be maybe more of an acute case versus a chronic? Sure, yeah, and that's okay. where I went wrong. This was a chronic case, but I do okay. agree with you in the okay. short term. Uh, absolutely, got it. Yeah, um, in the short term, when someone is very sensitized to movement and. Mm-hmm every movement they're doing is it's all about the message you give them. That's why education comes before the active care, like in the, you know, the chronology of seeing them in the office is you need to sit them down, talk to them, give them these messages, and then you reinforce those messages with movement. And that's, that is where I went wrong. That's where I misinterpreted, you know, reading too much data. And that's where I confused acute and chronic spine pain. And that's why I'm glad we talked about both of them because they are separate entities and they're, there's a completely different management strategy for both. So yeah, acute low back pain is a symptom. Chronic pain is a condition. Yeah. You don't treat acute low back pain. You, tr- you treat yep. whatever's causing the low back pain. What would be your top three tips for someone with chronic pain? I know tips? it's objective, but yeah. If you had to give someone like your best tip for chronic pain, what, what would it be? Mm. That's, that's hard to answer. Can we narrow it to like, chronic low back pain yeah um this will all be based on prior beliefs like Mm -hmm. you got to gauge their prior beliefs um there's so many myths out there in fact there is a paper i was reading about the seven most common myths in patients seven most common most common myths 
believed by medical students as far as the low back. And number one was that, you know, lifting causes low back pain, heavy lifting causes low back pain. It's the number one most commonly like understood and believed myth about back pain. Like there's, there's not a good correlation. There's a 2019 systematic review that came out about the association between physical exposures and low back pain. And it's just, it's scattered. We, we really can't come up with an answer. And the same with that, the article to flex or not to flex. Yeah. There's no evidence supporting telling a patient that you shouldn't flex or that you should lift with a straight back. Right. So yeah, if you could address the most commons, yeah. that would be one of them, but it all comes back to what does this individual yep. person Subjective believe fear. or yeah. Hmm. I, I know you got, you got to go now so we can, Keep doing this some other day. I, I could talk about this all day. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, do you yeah, have any more questions? I honestly, you've given me so much that I have to personally look at myself after this <laughs> that I can't ask any more questions for my own health. That that was my goal. <laughs> yeah, as as long as I'm making an impact on somebody, whether it's you two or anybody listening, like I, you know, I just want to motivate or you know, take the little bit that I've learned and pass it down more quickly. You guys are earlier on in your schooling and now you've heard this sooner than I did. So that's how we, you know, kind of hoist the next generation up is passing this information on along and, you know, communicating and getting the message across as soon as we can. So that's, that's really what I want is whoever's taking anything from this is they're going to be better off than I was. Well, thank you for teaching us and for taking an hour of your time to talk with us. Absolutely. I'll do it anytime. Great. Oh, thank yeah. you.